0: Pleased to have another episode of the Professional Football Researchers Association podcast here as part of the Sports History Network. John Bozica, George Bozica, along with you, as we've done for many episodes now. And we try to um, tell stories related to the game of football, and that can be uh, from ex-players. It can be from historians. It can be from those that are working on different books, movies uh sound pictures whatever it is anything that uh allows us to tell stories uh involving the game and uh trying to find ways to uh i guess preserve its legacy in different ways that's obviously what we try to do here on the podcast and tonight we're pleased to be joined by uh, scott ferguson green the associate producer of a new film that's coming out triangle park it's going to be called and uh Scott, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So, Scott, let's um, dive into the project itself and what it looks like, what it's about. And for those that maybe don't know the story, what the reason is for putting this together.
1: So the story of Triangle Park is about the very first National Football League game ever played back on October 3rd, 1920. The filmmaker who actually created the story is a native Daytonian. And he started um, coming up with this idea and creating a story over seven years ago. And um, he wanted to tell this story because this was the beginning of a new professional football league, an organized professional football league, the American Professional Football Association. And that was unique at the time, because back then, in around 1920, baseball fans were very upset that the Black Sox scandal took place. So they were staying away from ballparks in droves because they couldn't trust um, what was going on in the field. And so independent pro football was always very popular in Pennsylvania and Ohio because the pride of each individual town of an independent pro football team really mattered. And so the founders of now the NFL decided to at least get some sort of organization going. So when they did that, um, one of the things that they did was to have a schedule in which teams would play each other and then would count in standings. And so this story is about the first professional football game in the NFL um, that took place in Dayton, Ohio, at a place called Triangle Park. And that took place, again, on October 3rd, 1920. And there is a little bit of intrigue that goes along with that story. But this movie is also about the monumental task and efforts that were made by the original founders of the NFL. And that in itself is quite a story. And so the director, who's also the executive producer, Alan Farce, wanted this story to be told because it is, as we know, the NFL is the greatest, most successful sports league in the world, uh, earning billions and billions and billions of dollars. The popularity is beyond compare. And so having these very humble beginnings, And what those owners had to go through to get this league off the ground uh, was just amazing that they were able to to do this, especially since college football was king back then. As a matter of fact, any players that played professional football was not looked honorable upon because of the simple fact that the amateur game, the college football game, was clearly more popular and was more well-respected
0: than any professional football. When it comes to piecing the story together and finding the accuracies within it, how difficult has that been to go back and piece those things together and make sure that things are historically accurate? Was there a good account of this that existed that was um, accurate, that told the story, or has there had to been the need for like liberties and things like that to be taken as so many movies do.
1: Well, I think Alan and his team did a marvelous job in doing the research because again, any timepiece that you do of any docudrama movie or a movie itself, when you go back in time and you try to depict what those days were like, you have to get it accurate. So production design is very important. Set design is very important. Accurate costuming is very important. And you find that out by doing the research when looking at newspapers and photographs and exactly what it was back then, in in this case, 1920. You have to find those resources in order to be able to get all those things correct. Now, always in filmmaking, there's always a little bit of liberties that are taking place, but I think Alan... Forrest and his team did an amazing, amazing job to be able to get the uniforms accurate, the the costumes accurate. He even got automobiles that were available that were 1920 and be, before um, 1920, so that that would be accurate because there are people in audiences that pick up on those things. They can take a look at a car and they can see whether it is, a model of what year, I mean, that's some people are just really smart like that. And so you don't want any distractions by people picking out mistakes while you have um, movie audiences watching a film.
2: Scott, what was the genesis of you getting involved in the project as an associate producer? And if you could explain to our listeners exactly, you know, what a producer does in a film like this.
1: So... In the last PFRA convention in Canton, Ohio, I flew to Cincinnati, and um, I wanted to go to Dayton because my great-grandfather's younger sister, um, Sally Susan Ferguson, moved from Virginia to Dayton in the 1800s, and she and her husband had 16 children. And when she died, she ended up having so many descendants that I still, to this day, have Ferguson relatives who live there. And so I decided to visit and see the farm where they actually um, took ownership and and harvest a a lot of crops in Dayton. And while I was in Dayton, I also found out that this movie was being um, created. And in order for me uh, to actually be involved, I basically had to ask to be involved because of the fact that, um, in essence, it takes a lot to make a movie, and you want to be able to prove that you can contribute. Now, as an associate producer, I can tell you that associate producers don't do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, That's usually done by the producers themselves and the executive producer, but an associate producer does have an impact on the budget can have a say about the budget um, and also to in my role. And that is to promote the film. And so that's what I've been doing in different parts of the country. I've been promoting this film and got a lot of people interested because of the fact that no one ever heard of this story. And so um, basically it intrigued, especially when you send out PR production photos to people and let them see exactly what's taking place, people become fascinated about that. And there's been a lot of interest of the people that I've met so far in different parts of this country that are very much looking forward to this docudrama. But like I said, as an associate producer, I don't do a whole lot of heavy lifting. I wish I had a bigger part as far as producing is concerned. But as a producer, for the folks out there that don't know, the producer has one of the toughest jobs because you have to actually try to get the funding for your picture. And it got to the point where even independent movies were um, ballooning up to about on an average of $70 million per independent picture. And that's come down some, but it was getting out of hand how costly even independent pictures were becoming. And producers have to... Try and find the funding, especially in pre-production before even the first frame of the movie is shot.
2: Yeah, I don't think sometimes people realize all the work that goes into bringing a movie to a theater or to a streaming service or to whatever it is. I think, you know, people take it for granted. They see it. It's on there. And, you know, I think it's just taken for granted to realize just what goes into it. As you said, this, this whole germ of this idea started like seven years ago.
1: Correct. And... The thing that actually, you know, kind of interrupted the continuation for a little while was, of course, the pandemic, because the script was completed in June of 2020. and um, the pandemic kept production um, from happening because there were planned production dates that were going to take place. They had the locations, um, the location being right there at uh, in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, right there at Triangle Park. They also needed to shoot on location in Canton, Ohio at Benders in Canton, Ohio in different parts of Canton. And they also um, shot in New Jersey because they did get some assistance from NFL films. And so they were there to do some interviews as well. And then there were some interviews that were done in different parts of the country as well. So To be able to even do a film, and this is what I do every day for a living. I'm a cinema and TV lab technician. And so I know what it takes even for a shoestring budget can start getting out of hand as far as the budget is concerned if you're not careful. And so it is something that is very delicate when it comes down to being able to have the funding, make sure people are paid, make sure that the costs are done, that the bills are paid. Um, and I have been a producer on smaller projects, um, independent projects, and I've had to worry about the budget and the money aspect and all that. And, you know, anybody will tell you that when you make a, a motion picture of any kind, whether it be a docudrama or a narrative or or what have you, you're going to have challenges. That's inevitable. And so you have to be prepared for the unexpected and some of the challenges that would take place.
0: Scott, when it comes to the the list of folks involved in this, by the way, Scott Ferguson Green is uh, our guest. He is an associate producer for uh, the film coming out, Triangle Park, about the Dayton Triangle's first NFL game against uh I believe the Columbus Panhandles they played in that contest uh, back in 1920. Scott, when it comes to the list of people that are involved in this, I was I was doing some reading as we were talking here and seeing that you know Joe Buck's involved. I saw that Ben Roethlisberger's involved, Kirk Herbstreit's involved, um, Tony Dungy, Chris Collinsworth. I mean this this got a pretty great list Joe Theismann of people involved what are some of their roles in this what roles do they play and and are any of those people going to be featured as like actors in this or are they all like used for the account telling the story itself they're
1: used as telling the account of the story itself they're they're actually contributing as commentators on the story Um, I know that the cast itself was handpicked by the casting director that was hired. And so um, Alan had gotten actors, actual actors, to play some of the parts um, because the production involved reenactments because there aren't a whole lot of, unlike baseball, there aren't a whole lot of film that was preserved or even um, shot at that particular time because pro football was not popular. And even in those days, there weren't there wasn't a whole lot of college football um, footage that was shot Um, because baseball was so popular. Back at that time, you have a lot more um, baseball footage that uh, was shot that was actually preserved over many, many, many years. But you don't have that in football. So basically, Alan had to do some reenactments and uh, doing that, um, he had to hire actual actors to play the parts. And then some of the people that you have named, they are commentary, um, c- com, uh, able to provide commentary for um, the picture to help tell the story.
2: I noticed too, that recently uh, Michelle Tafoya came on board as uh, the narrator for the movie. She is
1: a wonderful get. Um, to have someone who is a sports um, four-time Emmy winner. And that was an absolute coup by Alan to be able to get her. Um, Alan is is becoming a, a very established director. He did a documentary on the Rolling Stones keyboardist, uh, Chuck Lavelle, called Chuck Lavelle, The, the Tree Men. And that is, was pretty successful as an independent documentary. And so Alan was getting himself a name out there. And because of the fact that he was able to get the right um, connections when it comes down to um, being able to um, connect with different companies, one thing led to another, and he was able to get Michelle Tafoya, um, which I think is absolutely fantastic because yeah. you saw her every week Um during one of the NFL games. And so Sunday night football. So, you know, to get her is someone that's easily recognizable and, and people can actually attach themselves right away. When you say the name Michelle Tafoya.
0: For the sake of um, posterity and making sure that this is right and done in a, in a certain way that it'll be viewed for, future generations how important do you think this work is scott from a standpoint of retelling stories involving the game not just for now but for somebody 50 60 years from now who doesn't know this story what do you hope it it the the arc of this ends up being over the course of time and and how important do you think that is
1: i think it's extremely important because you have in the sport of baseball where you have so much preserved that there's always a look back on its history. Um, pro football doesn't have that quite yet, but we are getting there. I remember a uh, NFL historian who also was the executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Joe Horrigan, he said to the group group, um, of the Professional Football Researchers Association, this is your job, this is your mission to preserve the history of pro football. I come from a small country town in Pennsylvania that is right next to Valley Forge National Park. And so I grew up where history is paramount. And because of that, I've always been in, interested in history. Pro football is my number one passion, my number one favorite sport. And so the combining of these two things is perfect. And I think it's very important for future generations to understand this phenomenon of the National Football League and how it came about is very important for people to know. I would hope that for future stars uh, of the National Football League, that they will understand how really the founders of the league gave them the opportunity to be able to make the money that they're making and to um, really take it as a privilege to be able to play in the National Football League because at one time pro football was not popular. But I think the popularity of it now to preserve its history is very important. And I think right now, as it is to preserve any type of history, the history of pro football in its preservation,
0: just like film preservation and other types of preservation, is very important. You know, it's interesting. You you mentioned baseball and and of course, I mean, I know the the Ken Burns documentary about baseball. I I think it was like a, a six or seven part series when it was all said and done I can't remember exactly how many parts there were to nine,
2: nine innings nine innings yeah.
0: okay so they did it like that yeah. and and I know that you know that tells the history of baseball up through a certain point that was done I think almost 30 years ago now it's been some time since that came out but is there a plan Scott with stuff like this I mean this is one of like a hundred thousand stories that could be told are there plans with people like alan people like yourself to take other stories and try to make films like this because i feel like we know a lot of stuff about the nfl post the years of the super bowl there's been so much work by nfl films is there a plan to do more stuff like this
1: I believe there is. As a matter of fact, um, there is a story right now that's in its infant stages, but it is called The Black Cyclone. It is about um, African American player Charles Follis, who was very instrumental in um, being able to um, get African Americans recognized in playing the game. He grew up in Ohio. He Matter of fact, there is in a a very affluent a, a town of Wooster, Ohio. They named the high school football field after Charles Fallis, and so I've, I've
0: actually, so, sorry to cut you off, Scott. I've actually called a game there before. I I know the the stadium very well. I've 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 set foot in there a number of times. It's a beautiful place, and and it's so cool what they've done. Keep going with what you were saying.
1: Yeah, so that that is in the works. It's called the Black Cyclone. Um, I know that there um, is a a possibility that um, there will be a story about George Hallis. Um, I got a chance to meet his daughter, um, Virginia Hallis-McCaskey, and I think George Hallis's story needs to be told, because if you read um, Jim Dent's book on Papa Bear, George Hallis, it's amazing what that man did to get the Chicago Bears popular because he was up against the Chicago Cubs. He was up against the Chicago White Sox in the Windy City. But he did everything. You know, he ran the concession stands. He coached. He uh, made sure of ticket sales. He did so much. And for what he was able to accomplish, I'm hoping that there'll be a story that is told by Um, someone or some filmmaker that will bring his story out. We know that there was a TV movie that was done by um, filmmakers that they did on Vince Lombardi and Ernest Borgnine um, played Vince Lombardi. And I remember that story, but I think in order to preserve pro football even more, there absolutely has to be where more stories are told because what Ken Burns had with baseball had to do with he had plenty of photographs, he had plenty of film, which allowed him to do a nine-part series on baseball. What the stories that are being told now will give us the compilation of how to preserve pro football. And the more that we tell those stories, the more familiar people will get and really appreciate exactly what this phenomenon is is, which is the National Football League.
2: I I read to this is sort of, to me was sort of an interesting sort of detail. Uh, A couple of years ago, obviously George Clooney made the uh, feature film Leatherheads, uh, which is basically sort of a screwball comedy about the early days of pro football. But I understand that the uniforms from Leatherheads were actually used in the making of Triangle Park.
1: Correct. Correct. Because in, about that particular time, it fit right in around 1920. So um, and that's one thing that Alan did really well. He used the best resources he could possibly um, use in order for him being able to put this whole thing together. And again, you worry about everything when you make any type of docudrama or narrative film, because everything has to be in place before you shoot your first frame of film. And Alan just, he was astonishing about what he was able to do to kind of get the resources to be able to put this all together.
2: You mentioned uh, the Rolling Stones keyboard is that he had done a documentary about him. I understand he's also been involved in this production.
1: Yes. He uh, actually composed the original uh, theme song for Triangle Park. He also um, co-wrote the score um, with a conductor um, for Triangle Park. So he was very much involved. And to get someone like Chuck Lavelle, I think, is, uh, again, just amazing and, and just adds to the tremendous talent that it took to bring together to actually make this docudrama
0: you know it's it's interesting we 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 talk about baseball you mentioned the accounts that were already in existence of things Um, baseball was looked at as America's pastime and and for some I think it still is I don't know that it it is by the younger generation as much now but do you think football has kind of overtaken that moniker in the United States Scott and that's why we are seeing so much more of the appreciation of past stories now because there is a generation of folks like myself that are 30 years old that basically kind of look past baseball and immediately went to football do you think that's why this is happening now I believe
1: so you you don't hear the word pastime with the sport of baseball unless it's older folks who remember the days of when baseball was a pastime. You don't hear that word that much. You do hear so much about passion and you do hear so much about America's most popular sport. And that's the new generation that has embraced football, especially pro football. Um, As crazy as college football, has become with, you know, the teams changing conferences and, you know, the dismantling of what seemed like, you know, what was, you know, perfect as far as having tradition is concerned and um, the type of rivalries that were longstanding. Um, College football is still popular. However, pro football is America's passion. And that's what you hear from the new generation.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I have to agree, too, because having grown up in Canton, I've sort of seen that growth mirrored in the Hall of Fame Festival from those humble beginnings to sort of the extravaganza, because I remember when I was a kid, you know, the Hall of Fame Festival was very simple, It was on the steps of the Hall of Fame. They had a a, a local radio personality. Uh, His name was Jim Muzzy, who was a legend in the area, but, you know, obviously, once they went to the extravaganza inside the stadium, then they got Chris Berman. But I remember those humble beginnings. They had a barbershop quartet sing during the enshrinement. And you know, usually Pete Roselle would give sort of a an address right at the end. And, you know, it was very simple. It was right along the expressway. And and I've seen it grow from that football's greatest weekend with that and the they used to have a fashion show for the ladies and they used to have a mayor's breakfast and then the Entrinese dinner. Now they have a two-week extravaganza. And I think that's mirrored the growth of the NFL during that time frame because that started back in 1963 when I was eight years old. But, you know, it's it just grown. And I, and I think it's mirrored in, in this thing the sort of the humble beginnings of this game, which I understand from reading 5,000 people were at Triangle Park to see that first game to now what we have today. Yeah. And um, people
1: back then – paid a, um, what they paid per ticket was $1.75 to watch that game. Now, the interesting thing, which tells you uh, how, you know, people were really excited back then on the first game was the fact that uh, you had a presidential candidate who actually was giving a speech on that same day, James Cox. Uh, He was running against Warren G. Harding. And he, on that day, came to Dayton to give a speech But the only thing anybody in Dayton would ever talk about is the pro football game that was happening at Triangle Park, and 5,000 people showed up. And, uh, again, it it was during the time where college football was king, but pro football had its humble beginnings, and yet even then people were very excited. And if anyone would actually visit Triangle Park in the actual field – where they actually played that game, uh, you will see that there wasn't a whole lot of room where people could actually stand or even sit in and around that field because of the shape of Triangle Park, but people did it. And that's how excited they were to see that game. As a matter of fact, in the newspapers the next day, it was quoted in the Dayton Herald on October 4th, the very next day after that game was played, There was a line that said, large crowd sees local team humble Columbus. And it goes on to say it was the best opening game ever staged here. And that, again, was in the newspapers in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So that was a lot of excitement for that time. And even the day before when the Dayton uh, Daily News actually promoted the game, they had Photos of six players that were on the Dayton Triangles on that front sports page. And they placed that higher than the article on the World Series, which tells you how important it was for Daytonians to see that game. And it didn't matter to the sports reporters of that day.
2: And, of course, Dayton won the game, too, 14 to nothing. So I'm sure that excited the locals even more. Absolutely.
0: you know, you mentioned the uh, crowd. I, I covered the Browns game uh, recently. There were 5,000 people probably in one of the parking lots I drove by on a Sunday just to to show the difference of how the game has grown. And, and it's funny because my dad was talking about this earlier. I, I still can't call him George. It doesn't feel right, Scott. Um, <laughs> but um, but you know it's it's interesting because we were talking about this the other day we were we were driving somewhere and we were saying that Canton has taken on that two-week extravaganza and there's a lot of people that love the purity of the game I think like the three of us do and like we long for the days of when it's like what Cooperstown has now I mean you go to Cooperstown and it is still like on the steps of the Hall of Fame it's very kind of just like you know I mean if you want to go you can go but it's not going to have a a three week extravaganza in Cooperstown and it's just it's so much different how the game has changed. And and I think that do you think it's important for people today to see that beginning of the five thousand fans, see what it came from and that it wasn't always what it is now. Cause I one thing I struggle with a lot is the recency bias of a lot of people. And I think I, I think stories like this are so important. I just want to get your thoughts on that.
1: Absolutely. Because, you know, when my um, great grand aunt Sally had actually moved to Dayton, I mean, Dayton was not very populated and she had a farm that was right there. And that is how much space there was. And to get 5000 people at a sporting event over a sport that basically was not even popular as its its brother um, in college football. And the fact that, you know, baseball was the at that time, the most popular sport in America, I think, says something about the growth and what those people were able to do as far as promoting it. And I think that that was really important for people to see um, about how many people actually showed up for a pro football game that, in essence, the league had not even been tested yet. You know, no one really knew whether the league was going to be successful because this was something that was very new as far as organization was concerned. And, you know, it ran through its rough patches. But the fact is, is that you had 5,000 people in a small town very interested in seeing professional football. And again, it has a lot to do with the pride. And I think people should see the humble beginnings of what is now a global phenomenon. I mean, you can't go anywhere in this world without people knowing the pro football teams in America because I know when I was overseas in Europe, you know, I had, you know, folks ask me if I could get them a pin or some sort of souvenir of a particular team that they were following. I re- I remember one of my friends from England somehow he became a big huge fan of the Buffalo Bills and he wanted me to get him any type of um, paraphernalia paraphernalia that had to do with the Buffalo Bills. And I I'm did sorry for him. I right got way. him in uh, <laughs> and I I sent it over to him. Go ahead,
0: George.
2: Uh Scott, I uh obviously this is a great project. Uh I know the release of the movie is imminent. Can you tell our listeners uh where they'll be able to see the uh, the movie. I know, uh, from what I understand, it's going to be available in theaters and also on streaming services. Yes. So um, it will
1: be released in theaters in the 32 NFL cities, plus 18 more across the country. Recently, it was announced that some theaters will actually open with the movie at the end of October. Uh, November 14th is going to be the majority release of triangle park in theaters um across the country and then on thanksgiving day 2023 it will be released on amazon prime
0: that's really cool something for uh everyone to watch then on thanksgiving opposed to to maybe well i don't know i can't say that the lion's getting beat i was going to say the lion's getting beat they're actually good this year i can't say that (laughs) Uh, sorry randy snow if you're listening to this he knows who he is um you know, Scott, I, I I wanted to ask you one more thing because you mentioned Charles Follis, the story that's being worked on there, the Black Cyclone. I I read a lot about that. I, I talked to a ton of people that were even working on that when I worked in Worcester for a little bit. Um, you mentioned how you think George Hallis deserves a story. Is there someone else that you think deserves a story or a, a moment in pro football of, of yesteryear that you think deserves something? like this to be done that if you were going to make a project next that you would pick as that next thing that you haven't named already
1: i can say right away it would be fritz pollard fritz pollard went through so much i got a chance to speak to his daughter and members of his family Uh, fritz pollard actually played in my hometown of phoenixville pennsylvania uh, when he was um, trying to go to dental school And so he decided that he was going to play in my hometown and play for my independent pro football team. And what that man went through to actually come out of uh, the racism that took place and some of the things that he had to do just to make it um, playing professional football is amazing. Um, Because he became very successful even after his pro football days, where he was part of Broadway as far as being able to produce shows um, in New York. Um, I think his story needs to be told. Um, he took everything in stride, didn't let things bother him. Even when Jim Thorpe called him all sorts of names, he just smiled and, and took it in stride. But he was, one, first of all, he was one of the first African-American head coaches in the NFL and he played for several teams. And um, because of his prowess, he was able to um, really get people interested in watching him play. And I know that um, that would be a story that would be um, fun to tell. And I hope that somebody does it. And I'm hoping that if somebody does do it uh, and if it has to be me, i'm hoping that i can do that but i i want to be part of that project as well
0: as as someone who grew up in akron and and remembers hearing about the, the akron pros as a young kid i i think that's really cool you know i mean my my brother and i always admired the fact that akron used to have a pro football team because the uh, only football team we have now is the university of akron and they are not uh, mm-hmm. not much of a team itself so you know, we, we always admired the thought of having pro football here in Akron. Scott Ferguson Green, uh, our guest, the associate producer of uh, Triangle Park. Scott, I know we asked you about the release. If people want to read more about this, is there a website? Is there social media that people can check up on? Where can they go to read more about this?
1: Well, they can actually go to the website Triangle Park, the movie, and um, if you google that it'll take you right to the website of um the movie itself and you can read about um the production the story behind it um and it it is something that i think is really worth um the time and effort to be able to do it because i think people are going to be really impressed how this story is being told um I know that Michelle DeFoy in an interview had said that when she found out about this, she was very eager to be a part of it. And, um, there just to be able to tell this particular story and the people are not going to be disappointed when they see this on the big screen. And I think that, um, if they read about it and get the background of it, they'll appreciate it even more because remember back then, you know, there was still the gambling aspect that tried to creep into sports. There was the um, thought process that the Columbus panhandles were trying to bring in some ringers from Ohio state um, because Ohio state won their game just the day before 55 to nothing. And so there were um, rumors of, Undergraduate Ohio State Buckeye players that were being slipped in on the Columbus panhandles. And so that was a big issue. Even the newspapers mentioned uh, those that were using aliases um, in that game. So, you know, there's a lot of little intrigue stories that go along with this, the telling of this story.
0: Scott Ferguson Green, uh, our guest, again, the associate producer of the movie coming out, uh, Triangle Park, about the first game in the NFL at uh, Triangle Park in Dayton against Columbus Uh, happened in 1920. And we really look forward to the movie coming out. And Scott, we thank you so much for joining us and being part of the Professional Football Researchers Association podcast. Great stuff. And uh, we look forward to chatting again in the future.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be able to talk about this. And I hope everyone gets a chance to see this picture, because like I said, you will not be disappointed. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.